Just a brief um, announcement first is, uh, as you know, we're hoping to get adoration started here, and we're uh, hoping to get it started in two weeks, um, but we still, uh, so anybody can come to adoration once it's started, obviously, but uh, we will, we need a few people to guarantee to be there for each of the hours. Um, so we're still looking for a few people for the 12 o'clock slot and for, I think, one person for the 1 p.m. slot. So if you're interested in helping out, you can contact Amber at the office. And if we can't get those filled up, then adoration will just stop at 12 for, for the time being. Um, so yeah. So one of the kind of greatest philosophical issues, or it's been kind of the philosophical air we've been breathing for about 150 years, and it's been kind of rampaging the church as well, is a heresy known as modernism. Now, modernism is a difficult phenomenon to discuss. Just in the homilies would require a lot more nuance than I'm going to be able to give today, but um, it's often a misused term. You see, some in the church would see modernism as a kind of good thing. It becomes almost the operative word, the banner under which any, in which we, we use to champion any change which disconnects us from the church's past is often connected with progress. Now, progress isn't a bad thing in the church. The church is a living body, and as bodies, they grow over time. But progress is always in the life of the church in connection with her history she doesn't annihilate it. And thus, really, uh, for the people in this kind of camp, progress is really revolution in the end, a total cutting off from a past. Then you have another camp where those who prefer the way things used to be and would see modernism as any infiltration of anything new into the church. So on one side, you have a kind of only building something new today and kind of keeping it that way or only having things as it was in the past and never letting it uh, develop organically over time. And often it's used in a kind of derogatory sense in language like to, because it's often used about anything that is not in accord with their personal taste. Oh, that's just modernist. Neither of these expressions comprehend or grasp what modernism's about. They're really not about modernism. It's really about aesthetics or my own personal taste, really. And, and the confusion around that term is understandable. It's, this term came into the magisterium under Pope St. Pius XII, X, I mean, in his uh, encyclical uh, Pescendi Dominis Gregis. And he never in this encyclical actually defines modernism. He just explains its contours. He just kind of walks around it tells us maybe some of its defining features, but doesn't actually say what it is. But I think you can summarize his teaching on this in a kind of pithy definition. It's the denial of mediation. Now, what does that mean? If you think, for example, about like a, when there's a contract dispute, right? There, you bring in a mediator, right? A middle person who kind of becomes the gateway for two parties to come to an agreement, right? That's what a mediator does. They're an in-between, okay? We call Jesus the mediator between God and man for this reason. He's the, he's the in-between. He's both fully God and fully man to bring these two worlds, if you will, together again. 
So the denial of mediation is saying that these two worlds can't actually meet. There is no middle ground for us and God. God cannot then interact with the world, nor can the world reach out to God. God might exist in a kind of modernist worldview, but the world is left to its own devices with no reference to him. If one took this to its logical conclusions, I think we could see quickly how this undermines the Christian faith. It means, for example, miracles are impossible. Because miracles, by their definition, depend on God intervening in a special way in his creation. So this means then God couldn't have saved Israel through the Red Sea. Mary could not have been immaculately conceived. The incarnation where God takes on our flesh in Jesus Christ is an impossibility. And at the end of it, perhaps the most important one, Jesus could not be raised from the dead. In all of these things, modernism makes these realities and truths of the faith impossible. One of the biggest places, and like I, I mentioned this because I think we don't realize how much it's seeped into our thought and into our culture as Christians as, as in the world. It's not our fault. It's not like a finger wagging if we believe, if, believe, if we, we kind of buy into this sometimes because it's just in the air we breathe. We just need to be aware of it more. And one of the biggest places I think this has kind of um, infected how we understand our Christian faith is how we understand and see the necessity of the church. So again, if modernism means that God and the world can't interact with each other, then the church becomes something different than what Jesus instituted it to be. Maybe the church is essentially just about the community of the people. Really, church is about us. It becomes a self-celebration. That's one way the church becomes seen, because really, God, God's too far away, essentially. God can't interact with us. And so, really, this is just us gathering together, and it really becomes self-referential and self-celebrating. Or the idea of church becomes kind of seen as an obstacle to faith, I don't really need the church to come to faith in Jesus, some might say. They see faith as an individual expression just between me and God. It's direct. It's not mediated. But both of these views are not what Christ intended the church to be. Jesus always intended from the beginning to institute a church through which he would always be present to the world. And it's about this church that Jesus speaks to us in the gospel today. In recounting the procedure in which a member of the church sins against their brothers and sisters, Jesus refers to the church as the sort of final court of appeal to bring about a resolution. And it's very interesting uh, how Jesus uses it in the gospel. I love the little accentuation that, that Matthew puts on it. And if they don't even listen to the church, like as if to say, this is the most matter-of-fact place that a Christian should listen to. <laughs> Jesus says they ought to be, become like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Very few verses later, Jesus tells us about how he's given the apostles the power to bind and to loose. And this is really a remarkable act when you think about it in the context of what's been happening in Matthew. 
Two weeks ago, we had Matthew 16, where Jesus, where Peter confesses his faith in Jesus. Last week, we had the opposite action of Peter, where he says, you're not getting crucified, where Peter really just sins, essentially. And, and this is a common trait of the apostles in the, in the Gospels. They constantly misunderstand and even sin against Jesus' mission. And the fact that Jesus still gives them this power despite that is remarkable, and it's worth praying over. But in all of this, Jesus makes one thing clear. Not only is there a church, but it's one with an authority to exercise Jesus' power of binding and loosing. He says, whatever you bind on loose on earth will be bound in heaven, as if to say there's a real connection between the two. This fact, though, of the church is still hard for us to wrap our heads around. Even for many Catholics, we don't see the church as necessary. And often it's because of how we understand the church. I'm not going to go into like an ecclesiology lesson here about what is the church, per se. Today it's more why the church. But often we see the church simply as an institution. Now, she has institutional elements and always will because that's part about being human. And Jesus never annihilates anything that is legitimately human. So the church has to have institutional elements to it because that's part of being a human in a fallen world. And so we think, well, why does Jesus, you know, sometimes need to create an institution like the church? All that really matters is simple and pure faith. I don't need the church to have faith. How often we might hear from someone who believes in God, who even proclaims themselves to be Catholic, but sees no need to participate in the life of the church. Or we might think, well, as long as my kid goes to a church, that's all that matters. No, there's, Jesus institutes a definitive church with a definitive form and shape. These are important. It's what Jesus, it's, we have to be obedient to what Jesus institutes and does in the Gospels. And, and, and the reasons for this are many-fold. And, and again, too much for a homily. The problem, or not, the, the issue cannot be ignored. You see, what Jesus is getting at today is that you cannot have him without the church. In the gospel, Jesus makes it very clear what happens in heaven and on in the church in terms of, of kind of her rulings and judgments about the life of faith, it's one thing. You cannot have access to Christ without the church. It's impossible. And this is something Jesus has instituted from the beginning. But too many of us has, have ceased seeing the church as the central place in which we encounter the person of Jesus. So let's bring modernism back into the discussion. What's at play here? Why we often struggle with the idea of the church? And let's be honest. Sometimes people in the church make it very easy for us to struggle with the idea of the church. Whether it be leadership or family members or anything else, it's easy to struggle with the idea of the church sometimes. But the real reason, the heart of it, is that we have ceased seeing the principal way Jesus 
more importantly, I'd even say the Trinity act throughout salvation history. God always works in the world through things. Always. This is God's principal mode of action. It's what we call the sacramental worldview, that the church understands sacrament beyond just the seven sacraments, but that creation is meant to point us towards and be a means to an encounter with God, that everything about the life of the church, her liturgy, her preaching, her life of charity and virtue, our suffering, everything is the means by which Jesus draws us into his life. Throughout salvation history, God's primary mode of action is never in a direct spiritual illumination, but it's always him breaking into his creation, working with the material world that he has created in order so that he might be known. God does this for one, there's a lot of reasons, but there's, this is the one reason I'm going to focus on today. God does this because this is how we come to know things. Like, how do we know we're in a church right now? Well, we see the structure and the form of the church. It's a cruciform thing. We see a tabernacle, so that tells us we're in a Catholic church. We see the pews and the people. We hear the music and the mediocre preaching. We uh, smell the incense sometimes, you know. It's all these things tell us I'm in a church. We come to know things through our senses. We don't have a direct illumination in the mind. We know things through other things. And so if, you want to, if we want to know God, it's going to be in the same vein, not in a direct fashion, but in a mediated fashion, through things, through a middle term that, brings, that helps us and God relate to each other. This is why God is made present to Israel in the cloud and in the pillar of fire. Why God is made known to Elijah in the calming wind, to Moses in the burning bush. These are all signs and prefigurements of how God works. And they're prefigurements of the definitive way God finally makes himself known to us. And Jesus Christ, who takes on our full humanity. In Christ, God is fully known. Hence, Jesus' phrase to Philip, he who sees me sees the Father. But uh, again, there's another, uh, there's another question that sometimes lingers in our minds. Okay, this is great, fine. The incarnation's real, fine. But uh, the apostles were actually with Jesus. We don't see him directly anymore. So that's, that, that works for 2,000 years ago. How does that work for us today? And we almost hold it with a bit of resentment that Jesus ascends to heaven. But Jesus doesn't ascend to heaven to become invisible to us. He doesn't ascend to heaven in order to test our faith so that it can be pure. He actually ascends to heaven to become more visible, to become more known. While on earth, he was only able to be in one place and to be present to one group of people. But it's this group of people that he has drawn to himself that he sends the Holy Spirit upon, which is his spirit, in order to make himself present to the world through them. When you read scripture, 
Prepositions are very important. Right? Paul loves to use the preposition in. Here, the definitive word is through. God works through things. God works through the church. And perhaps a great testament to this is in Acts of the Apostles, where Paul is going to Damascus. He falls down, he sees this bright light. And what does Jesus say to Paul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did Paul crucify Jesus? Did Paul make political machinations to try and bring about his trial and death? No. Paul was persecuting the Christians. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies himself with the church because he is its principle and foundation and life. And it really becomes the foundation of Paul's whole vision of the church that we see in Corinthians. It's pretty much, I'm convinced, why he calls the church the body of Christ. It's the church that is Christ's continued presence on earth through the baptized faithful and structured around the foundation of the apostles. So then why did Jesus institute a church? So that he could be un- continually and universally be made, make present the salvation that he has won for us. What happens at Mass today is the cross and resurrection of Jesus made present throughout history, that one sacrifice, that one redeeming mystery, so that it can be made accessible to all time and all places. This is why Jesus does not simply establish a communion fellowship, but he, go, he gives certain members of this fellowship through the bishops and the pope his power and his authority because ultimately, ultimately, these things are not the churches. It's not, you know, when a bishop makes a ruling, it's not just some willy-nilly, uh, I'm just going to make this ruling just for the sake of it. It's Christ acting through them for the good of the faithful. It's, they're exercising Christ's power, his saving actions, and his saving power in the church. And it's why the bishops also have the power to bind and loose. And the church has the ability to judge when people have sinned and have refused to reconcile themselves to it. We have that fancy term today, excommunication for that. This is how God has always worked. Through his creation. Through his church. As fallen and as fallible as it might be, God continues to work through his creatures to bring his plans to fruition. Finally, though, this is an important point to make. It also speaks to God's humility. And even, I'd say, like, I say this poetically, his vulnerability. For if this is all true, it implies a flip side as well. When the church fails in her mission, she becomes a hindrance to the working of grace in the world. The church, as I've said before, is the sacrament of salvation. But through the sinfulness of her members, she can also become a sort of anti-sacrament or anti-sign. Just as we make Christ visible, so we can hide him as well. So the reality and the necessity of the church 
implies a real responsibility for the whole church, lay and clergy, to always submit ourselves to Christ because our mission is his. And it is none other than to, make, to be the visible means by which Christ works his salvation in the world. And he depends, he truly depends upon us to make the saving mission a reality.